0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Omari Avred phillips the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Matthew Delmont about his new book, Half American, the epic story of African Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. Dr. Matthew Delmont,
1: welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Absolutely. Uh, So, Dr. Delmont, I wonder if you could begin the interview just by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, So my name is Matt Delmont. I'm originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, I did my undergrad at Harvard, my um, master's and PhD at, at Brown University. Um, I'm now at Dartmouth College, I've been here since 2018, and before being at Dartmouth, I was at Scripps College in Claremont, California for uh, for about six years, and then at Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona for four years. Um, and beyond being a historian, uh, my favorite hobby is running. I love distance running, and so it's great to be up here in, uh, in Haver, New Hampshire, because it's really a beautiful place to run, even though it's quite cold some days like today. I can
2: imagine. Uh, so how did you come to this project?
1: Um, so all my work is on African-American history and the history of civil rights in some way. Um, but this new book project on World War II, it really grew out of my last project. So my last book was a, a digital book I did for Stanford University Press called Black Quotidian, Everyday History in African-American Newspapers. And for that project, I was looking through digitized historical black newspapers like the Chicago Defender and Pittsburgh Courier and just going through the historical digital digital archives of those papers. And when I... Came across papers from the, the war years, 1941, 42, 43, I was really struck by how many pictures and profiles there were of average black men and women who volunteered or were drafted to serve in the military during the war. Um, obviously, this is a topic I've, I've taught about for a number of years, but seeing those kind of everyday stories, these people from Cleveland, from Minneapolis, from Los Angeles, names that are not famous in any way, names that wouldn't make in a textbook. Um, at First, I came across about a dozen of these uh, articles and profiles, and then eventually hundreds and hundreds. And seeing those really kind of opened my eyes to how much of a story was there in terms of the participation of Black Americans during the war. And it made me curious. And so that really is about seven years ago. It launched me on the, the research project of, of doing the research for this book that became Half American.
2: Wonderful. And so, in the introduction to the book, you state that, and I quote, nearly everything about the war, the start and end dates, geography, vital military roles, home front, and international implication, uh, looks different when viewed from the African American perspective. Could you walk us through some of what's illuminated about World War II when viewed through an African American perspective?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I'll zero in on a couple of those pieces. So, when we think about the start and end dates of World War II from the American perspective, Uh, almost to a fault. We talk about 1941 to 1945. 1941, obviously, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, December 7th, after that's when America officially enters the war. But for Black Americans, World War II really did start before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Um, I start my book in the 1930s with the Spanish Civil War, because when you go back and look at the primary sources, particularly coverage in Black newspapers, if you looked at a Black newspaper from 1933, 34, 35, You'd see extensive coverage of the rise of fascism in Europe. Black newspapers were among the first to recognize the really serious threat that Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime posed in Germany, because they understood that Hitler was pointing to American racial policies to help justify his treatment of Jews in Europe. Things like the segregation of Jews on train cars, the theft of Jewish property, the, the violence against Jewish communities. Black editors and writers were making really clear connections to those racial policies and what was going on to Black Americans in the Jim Crow South. When Benito Mussolini and Italy invade Ethiopia in 1935, that sends shockwaves across Black America because Ethiopia at the time is the only independent Black nation in Africa. That invasion of uh, Mussolini's fascist forces, it, it catalyzes uh, Black Americans to to, um, to pay attention to what's going on in Europe and to... to Really demand that there's some serious action taken against fascism. A couple years later with the Spanish Civil War, 1936, again, Black Americans are among the first to recognize that this isn't just a problem for Europe, but it's really a problem that's going to have broad international implications. And you're already seeing headlines at that point saying the Second World War has started uh, as early as 1936. And so it's important for me to start the story years before Pearl Harbor, because my argument is that for Black Americans, they already understood that The Second World War had started well before America became militarily involved in the conflict. On the back end then, 1945, yes, the military battle ends, but for Black Americans, that wasn't the end of the war they are committed to having actual freedom and democracy here in the United States. And so that whole generation of Black veterans comes back and immediately starts fighting for civil rights here in the US. Um, and then I think the one other piece that really changes when you look at the war from the Black perspective is what it meant to, to fight and win this global war. Um, I can talk more about this later, but the really important roles that Black troops played in the supply and logistical roles in the war are not typically something that comes through in the many military histories we have of World War II. We tend to talk about air power or uh, tanks or frontline combat troops, but it was really these behind-the-scenes roles that black troops played in the supply and logistical units that really helped to win the war. And so looking at the war from that perspective really opens up entirely new perspectives on, on what World war, World war II looked like.
2: And so you make it a point to make a connection, um, as you just sort of alluded to there, uh, between Nazism and white supremacy in this country. Uh, Can you explain the importance of that connection?
1: So my goal as a historian, as much as possible, is to try to follow the sources. And the thing that comes through really clearly in the sources from World War II, from black commentators, critics, and activists at the time, was that they really saw Nazi racial policies and American racial policies as two sides of the same coin. Uh, and they were really explicit in calling out those those connections, and they were historic. They were accurate to do so. They, they understood that Hitler was explicitly pointing to American racial policies to justify his actions. I think it's important because it's easy for a lot of American readers, I think, to look back at World War II as being the good war or being a time when America was somehow more unified uh, in its um, in its outlook. The reality is America was deeply, deeply divided in terms of race during World War II, and there was intense racial conflicts and racial violence all across the country. And it's important to to make that clear because otherwise we come away with a really um, misleading understanding of what World War II was like. On the home front in 1943 alone, there were more than 240 racial conflicts and race riots all across the country in big cities and small towns on military bases. The entire military was racially segregated. The Red Cross even went so far as to segregate blood donations, uh, even though there's no scientific basis from which, by which to segregate blood. And so I think it's important to to recognize that those kind of Jim Crow policies in the United States, the kind of system of racial apartheid that exists in the United States, Black Americans were calling that out at the time. This isn't just something that historians discovered later, but this comes through in every source you can find from during the war, in Black newspapers and otherwise. And it... It gives us a different perspective to understand that in one of the great, um, the great hypocrisies of World War II, from the American perspective, is that they're fighting a war that theoretically is about freedom and democracy internationally, but they're fighting it with a segregated military. Um, they fighting it while condoning and supporting uh, intense racial segregation, intense racial discrimination, racial violence at home. I think that's another piece where the war, from the Black perspective, it's a much more honest accounting of what the country was actually like during World War II, as opposed to a a more uh, mythologized accounting. Yeah.
2: And so, I want to sort of pivot to the the double V campaign. Um, So I wonder if you could tell us sort of the aims of the double V campaign, how that sort of differed from uh, what you call sort of the single V campaign, um, and how African Americans actually
1: engaged in the campaign, both at home and also abroad. So the title of the book, Half American, it's drawn from a letter that a man named James Thompson wrote to the Pittsburgh Courier in 1941. So Thompson was a 26-year-old from Wichita, Kansas, and after the bombing of Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, he writes this letter to the Pittsburgh Courier that asks a series of very kind of pressing, pointed questions. He asked, "Should I sacrifice my life to live half American? Is the America I know worth defending?" And that letter, it just really stuck with me for the, the seven years I was working on this book, particularly that phrase, should I sacrifice my life to live half American? It's why I made it the title of the book. Because what Thompson was asking is, what does it mean for him and other black Americans to be drafted into a military that was racially segregated and to be asked to fight and potentially die for a country in which they were not treated as full citizens? The Pittsburgh Courier uses Thompson's letter to launch the double victory campaign, uh, which I think as a lot of listeners likely know, Was the the rallying cry for Black Americans during the war. Um, They were fighting for victory over fascism abroad and victory over racism at home. It was an important campaign because it it really swept across the country. Um, It's something that was important about Black newspapers at that time is that these were really national papers. They shared shared distribution networks, they shared uh, press coverage, and they weren't just reporting on Current events; they were actually shaping those current events. And so, the editor of the Pittsburgh Courier, the editor of, of other, the editors of other uh, major black newspapers, they were they were activists of their time. They were fighting to try to desegregate the military, fighting to try to segregate the war industries, fighting to try to make sure that there was uh, actual equality for black Americans during the war. That double victory campaign was important, though, um, because it it spoke really clearly to what the war needed to be about. Um, that it wasn't enough to just defeat Hitler and the Nazi regime militarily and then come home to a country that still condoned the exact same kind of racial policies at home. Um, that they had to have both the military victory but also finally bring an end to racism and white supremacy in the United States. I think if we take the double victory campaign seriously, it becomes pretty clear that the United States didn't fully win World War II. That yes, the military battles were were successful but that larger battle against racism and white supremacy um, did not come to pass it, it continued for generations after 1945 and it continues into the present day something i didn't realize i was going to be fully arguing until i got into the project was i think again if we take the double victory campaign seriously it becomes pretty clear that for a lot of white americans they were fighting a single victory campaign that they really just wanted military victory and then a return to the way things were before the start of the war. This was true from public polling during the war, it was true from the the sentiments that were offered by white citizens and by white veterans later. The the phrase that they kept saying was, we want to go back to how things were. We want to go back to the America that we left. That was the exact opposite of what black Americans wanted. They didn't want to go back to a country that treated them as half American. And so when we look back at the post-war period, it becomes clear that one of the reasons there was so much tension and conflict in those post-war years is because there were very, very different visions for what post-war America was going to look like. Black Americans, black veterans came back and they wanted to upend the racial status quo. But for too many white Americans, they wanted to, to entrench it. Um, and That's where a lot of the political and cultural um, tensions that emerged in the post-war era, that's, that's where they had their roots.
2: And so African-Americans had to navigate obstacles to fight, just to fight in World War II. Um, What were some of these obstacles that you've mentioned some of them, but if you could get a bit more in depth about those um, and how did African-Americans overcome them? And also just why did African-Americans want to fight in the war in the first place?
1: So at a high level, um, black Americans have participated in every military conflict the United States has ever been a part of. Um, And so that was why it was particularly frustrating that they were, um, they were being blocked from a lot of the participation during World War II. If we go back to World War I, there are more than 300,000 Black Americans who served in that war with the hope, the expectation that their service, their demonstrated courage and bravery would lead to... Improvements in terms of treatment in the United States lead to uh, improvements in terms of equality and civil rights. And in fact, we know that the exact opposite happened. Uh, they came back to a country and to communities that were openly hostile to them and that um, you had a rise in racial violence and uh, racist policies in the years after the war, including the, the so-called Red Summer of 1919. Between World War One and World War Two, the military does almost everything they can to push Black Americans out of the service. So the percentage of Black Americans in the armed forces actually declines from World War One into the lead up to World War II. So the first thing that um, civil rights activists and black editors have to do in the years just before America enters the war in 1941 is actually fight for the opportunity to fight. They're, they're campaigning um, with military leaders and with um, FDR in, in the White House to make sure that um, the Army, Navy, Marines actually uh, accept black Americans into the service of their country. It's hard to to realize it now, but at the start of the war, in addition to being Entirely segregated, some branches, including the Marine Corps, didn't allow Black Americans to serve at all. Um, it wasn't until late nineteen forty-two that the Marine Corps allowed the first Black Americans to serve. And so the the first challenge, really, for for Black Americans at the time was to to force military leaders to, to open up enough units to accommodate the Black Americans who who desired to serve their country. And that question of why Black Americans would want to serve is a really good one. It's one that students ask all the time because on the face of it, it was hard to make the case why Black Americans should want to fight for a country that didn't treat them equally, particularly given the track record of how military service hadn't led to the kind of equality that had been promised previously. But going back to the sources, I think the things you can see in terms of why Black Americans wanted to, to serve in the country, there, there were multiple different threads that came together. Um, one was patriotism. Um, I think it's, it's hard to make a sweeping claim about all Black Americans in any historical period. But there were certainly a number of Black Americans who were were deeply patriotic, um, who responded to the bombing of Pearl Harbor and wanted to volunteer to serve in their country. There were people who had military um, service in their family's traditions and wanted to continue those traditions. And so, patriotism was certainly part of it. Second is that military service offered the opportunity for job and skills training and travel that wasn't available in other other lines of, of work. And so that was a real concern, that because the military is taxpayer-funded, one of the things that activists and um, Black newspaper editors kept saying was, we're paying for an army and a navy that we can't fully participate in. That means we're, we're training, we're paying for the training of of pilots and of um, mechanics and of all sorts of different jobs that we're not able to benefit from. So they want to be able to benefit from, from that service. And then the final piece was it was, was clear to everyone that World War II was going to be a massive, massive turning point, both worldwide but also in the history of our country. And it was clear that service in, in the war was going to um, determine what it meant to be an American in the years afterwards. And I think that's a link to the patriotism piece, but it's almost a more um, – more pragmatic recognition that to be excluded from serving one's country in one of the defining moments of the 20th century was going to have long-term implications and that's why it's part of why um, black Americans fought to serve in their country despite all of the, the very strong reasons why they might have chosen to to sit out the war.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Right.
2: And so what was life like for African-American soldiers during World War II?
1: It was extraordinarily difficult for Black Americans to be in military service during the war. Um, The stories that Black veterans tell of of their service, um, a common one was once they volunteered or got drafted, they would get on trains from cities like New York, Chicago, and head to these training camps, army training camps, which were typically in, in the South. They would get to the demarcation points, whether it was Washington D.C. or elsewhere, that marked their entry in the South, and then be forced to transfer into the, the Jim Crow section of the, the train car, much a segregated section of the car. They would pull into these small southern towns and have to pull down the shades on the train um, so that white townspeople wouldn't throw rocks at the train because they were so upset about the idea of black servicemen and women coming to these southern bases. And then once they were on these southern bases in states like um, Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia, they were treated horrendously. Um, they were uh, harassed and sometimes attacked by fellow uh, white enlisted men and officers. When they were going to towns, they were treated hostily there as well. Um, when they would have sort of recreation for 24 hours to be able to go into the, t- the small towns, they are cordoned off into the one or two block black area of town. If they stepped even a foot outside of that, they were harassed or beaten by by white sheriffs. That kind of treatment was obviously deeply, deeply upsetting to both black servicemen and women, but also to their families who were getting letters back home um, describing this kind of treatment. There were a number of letters that went to either black newspapers or to the NAACP, to people like Thurgood Marshall at the NAACP, saying these were black soldiers writing, saying that they would feel safer once they got deployed to the European theater or the Pacific theater, then they felt on these armed bases in the South. that they, The words that they're said that they felt like they were literally at war while still here in the United States. Um, that's a perspective that doesn't usually come through when we talk about World War II. Um, but part of why it was important for me to talk about the war both at home and abroad is that for black servicemen and women, they really felt like they were in a hostile uh, battleground while still here in the United States while in, in the service of their country. Um, and the other piece is that, depending on which branch they got drafted into, the opportunities were very limited for a lot of black troops in the Navy, for example. Until um, late in the war, black men could only serve as mess attendants, where they would essentially wait on and serve white officers. Um, and I, I want to make clear, as I try to do in, in the book, that this kind of segregation discrimination—it served no strategic or tactical purpose. Like there was no good reason for the military to be racially segregated at this time. In fact, it was—it was. It was onerous to to maintain this kind of segregation it was costly. It, it was someone's job, literally, to try to maintain segregated barracks, segregated latrines, segregated re- recreation facilities. Um, the only reason the military was segregated was to, to appease white racial prejudice at the time. Um, and Black Americans understood that. They, they were frustrated that Black volunteers, Black draftees who had advanced language skills, who had PhDs from Harvard, who had skills trained that could help win the war, um, whether it's electronic training or other training, that they were assigned to be cooks or assigned to be mess attendants, that it was really the case that the military went out of their way to not take advantage of the the manpower of, of black citizens during the war.
2: And so what about for African-Americans that were non-soldiers? What was life like for them in the U.S. during World War II? And how did they try to advance the aims of the V campaign as well?
1: Yeah. So a really important part of the story is the campaigns around the defense industries okay. during World War II. Um, In the lead up to the war before America's entered militarily, President Roosevelt announces that the United States is going to be the arsenal of democracy, that it's going to provide the the tanks and the the planes and the ammunition to the allies to help win the war. Everyone understands that that means there's going to be a huge number of jobs, uh, and Black Americans want the opportunity to to take part in that. So one of the main characters in the book is A. Philip Randolph, uh, who led the March on Washington campaign. Um, This was a a precursor to the the March on Washington um, in 1963. But Randolph did is he threatened to lead a a group of 100,000 black Americans in a March on Washington in the summer of 1941 unless the White House agreed to pass non-discrimination provisions for defense industries. Uh, Randolph is ultimately successful in um, persuading, in really enforcing President Roosevelt to sign an executive order that introduces these non-discrimination provisions. The executive order doesn't end up uh, giving everything it it claims to give or producing the the outcomes that it might, might produce based on what's the words on paper, but it's still an important demonstration of Black political power during the war because Randolph shows that with coordinated effort and with persistent pressure, it's possible for Black Americans to, to really force the White House, force um, politicians at the highest level to to address the, the very real material concerns that Black Americans have. Over the course of the war, there's more than a million Black Americans who participate in the defense industries, including 600,000 Black women. And think for those Black women in particular, these defense industry jobs were incredibly important because it offered them an opportunity to, to take on jobs at were off limits than before. Um, prior to the war, the main uh, forms of outside the home labor that were available to black women were either agricultural work or uh, working as domestic laborers for for white families. And so, one of the the, um, the consistent refrains for these so called black rose derivatives was that it it was the war that helped to get them out of white women's kitchens. Um, I think it was really important that the um, these defense jobs opened up and offered these opportunities to to black women, and that they, they forced their ways through forced our ways into the, these jobs through um, through activism. Um, and the other piece that's, that's true on the home front is that you see the, the formation of the infrastructure for the much larger civil rights movement that expands after the war. So another of the key characters in the book is Elle Baker, the famous grassroots activist. She is the the head of the um, branch operations for the NAACP during the war. and So she's traveling all across the country, organizing local people, to form branches of the NAACP and to become members. Um, and because of her successful organizing, the NAACP membership expands dramatically over the course of the war. It goes from being an organization that's primarily focused just in New York and then the Northeast to being a truly national organization. And importantly, Baker understands that you don't have to be a professional class Black person to be a leader, that one of her great innovations is recognizing that there's a leadership capacity uh, across um, all um All categories of of Black Americans. And so she's organizing among sharecroppers, organizing in beauty parlors and in barbershops. It's a model of organizing that influences um, the Student Amount Coordinating Committee in the 1960s and even influences everything up to Black Lives Matter more recently. But I think it's particularly important in this story because she was directly refuting the claims of the US military, which said that Black Americans didn't have the intelligence or the the courage or the organizational capacity to be great leaders. She was showing exactly the opposite with her, her organizing uh, across the country.
2: Yeah. And so what what did uh, African-American soldiers find upon returning to the U.S. after the war?
1: For Black veterans, when they came back to the United States after the war, um, they returned to a country that was, was hostile to them. And this is one of the hardest parts of the book to, to research and write, is that they was an intense period of violence against against these black veterans. In the book, I describe a dozen such cases of black veterans who were attacked or murdered um, for violating the color line or for for being too proud of their, their uniform. Um, and those are difficult stories to to read about um, because they they speak to the they speak to the reality of how deeply entrenched racism was in the years after the war, but how deeply entrenched the the desire to maintain or to reassert that racial status quo was among a number of, of white citizens, particularly in, in the U.S. South. But at the same time, those black veterans, they move into the civil rights movement and become really the backbone of, of that movement, and they um, breathe life into the civil rights organizations all across the country. Uh, as one veteran put it, they went from fighting in the Euro- European theater of operations to fighting in the Southern theater of operations. Um, I think maybe the best example of this is medigrevers Evers. Um, He's just 19 years old when his group, um, his port battalion landed uh, at Normandy just days after the D-Day invasion. He's part of a battalion that is loading um, trucks that are part of a truck convoy called the Red Ball Express. So he's doing some of this kind of important behind the scenes logistical supply work that I described earlier um, that's really crucial to helping to win the war. When he comes back in 1946 on his 21st birthday, he leads a group of black veterans who attempt to register to vote in Decatur, Mississippi, only to be turned away by a white mob with guns. After 1946, he obviously dedicates his life then to civil rights. He takes on increasingly important roles in the civil rights movement, Um, In Mississippi, he helps investigate the lynching of Emmett Till in 1955, um, continues to fight for voting rights uh, through the 1960s until he was tragically assassinated in 1963. And so I think for Evers and veterans of his generation, there was a real continuity between their military service, their sense of fighting for America during the war, and then coming home and fighting for America to to really, truly be a, a democracy here in the United States.
2: And uh, what was the status of the Double V campaign after the war?
1: So the Double V campaign formally uh, formally it ends at the end of the war, um, but I'd say the the motivating factors for it uh, continue um, well beyond the end of the war. Um, because the, I think this is important that it wasn't just a clever turn of phrase or, or a, a, a slogan, but it it really spoke to what black Americans all across the country were demanding that it it wasn't just enough to defeat fascism abroad, that obviously that was important. Obviously Hitler and the Nazi regime had to be defeated. Those military battles had to be won, but that truly was only half the battle that the second and really larger stage of the, of the battle um, was the, the war against racism at home, the war against white supremacy in the United States. And so even, even though double victory doesn't um, continue to show up as a, an organizing um, an organizing principle in the years after the war certainly that desire to do everything possible to to upend racial discrimination in the United states continues to be the the um, a, a foundational principle of uh, civil rights organizations all across the country from the 1940s really well beyond the 1960s
2: and so you make it the point in this book to talk about sort of the accomplishments of African-American soldiers during World War II and how that's been erased. Um, why have these accomplishments been erased? And how does this erasure affect our understanding of the war and of sort of Black history in the country in general?
1: Yeah. So throughout the book, I tried to draw a lot on Black newspapers. and. One of the things that was important was the um, the number of war correspondents that black newspapers had that were imbo- embedded with these black units. And one of the reasons I tried to draw on those sources is that these war correspondents, people like Roy Otley, um, Van Anderson, Langston Hughes earlier in the war, they're talking about the really vital roles that black troops were playing to help win the war. Um, and these were often things that didn't show up in the, the mainstream white press. These were stories that were often underreported. At the same time, and this is near the end of the war, 1945, they're talking about how those those contributions and that bravery and courage was already being written out of the history of, of the war. And so it was important for me and in some ways surprising for me as a historian to recognize that, that whitewashing of the history of World War II has literally been going on since 1945. One of the things that showed up um, in these these black newspapers was being upset at um, some of these large uh, volumes of pictures that were published in the years just after the war by, by Life Magazine and Collier's Magazine and others that included thousands and thousands of pictures from the war, but only one or two examples of Black Americans in in the service of their country. And so I think the the reason Black Americans were have been written out of the story. Um, I think the most straightforward reason is racism. Um, I think that was true in the nineteen forties and fifties that. When white editors, white historians, um, white military officials wanted to write the history of the war, they focused on the contributions of of white soldiers and sailors um, and didn't do justice to the the very real contributions of of black Americans. But then I think even beyond that, once Hollywood kind of came to to talk about the war, they tended to focus on frontline platoons in combat. Um, I think this was true from some of the films that came out immediately after World War II, all up to something like Saving Private Ryan. That focus on how one portrays the history of World War II, almost by definition, means you're going to be focusing on, on white troops. Because there were certainly black troops in combat. There was the Tuskegee Airmen. There was the 761st Black Panther Tank Battalion. There were infantry divisions. There were the Montford Marines. So we do have examples of, of black men in combat. But by and large, black troops, the role that they played was in these supply and logistical roles that were behind the scenes. Because so many films have focused on these kind of frontline platoons, the ones that were on the front lines storming the beaches, that has also excluded Black Americans from this larger vision and um, kind of mythology about World War II. Um, And so part of the argument I try to make in the book is that World War II wasn't just a battle of strategy and will, but it was a battle of supply. And if if we take that much larger perspective, then it becomes a lot easier to talk about the really important and in fact vital roles that black troops played in helping to win the war um i think things have improved in the last five or ten years we have more documentaries more more books more articles on specific black units and i think the thing that i hope my bu- my book um tries to do is provide a a kind of big picture overview of um the Many, many ways that Black Americans contributed to the war effort and really fought for um, civil rights at the same time that they were, were fighting to win the war.
2: And so to move off the book just for a moment here, uh, you recently wrote a wonderful piece uh, for New York Times, or sorry, for Time Magazine, uh, where you stated, uh, I have taught ab- uh, I've taught about the history of World War II for more than a decade, but now I wonder if it's still legal to teach students about what black soldiers and veterans like Baker Evers experienced uh, as the push to restrict the teaching of racism, especially in higher education, becomes more widespread across the US. I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about the importance of writing and teaching this history in the face of
1: forces that want to make it obscure or erase it all altogether. Yeah. So say this is a very strange time to be a historian. Um, So I live and work in New Hampshire, um, and this is one of the many states that has either passed or considered so called uh, divisive concepts legislation or uh, um, legislation that's meant to attack so-called critical race theory. And I'd say it's a strange time to be a historian because so much of the public debate about how we should talk about the history of our country is, is so wrong-headed and is so divorced from anything that I or, or my colleagues do in the classroom um, that the reason I wrote the article for Time is that I, I truly do wonder some of the people who are in favor of this kind of legislation if they understand what it means in practice if it's taken to the extreme. Right? I think if. If that legislation is truly uh, enacted in some of the ways that people intend, it wouldn't be possible to talk about the history of World War II in any meaningful way. Um, because to talk about it honestly, you have to talk about the reality that the American military was racially segregated. Right? It was racially segregated because people in key positions of power believed in white supremacy. Um, that's not a, a partisan statement. That's the historical reality based on based on the sources. Um, and I think. For me as a historian, it's important for every citizen, regardless of their political um, affiliations, to reckon honestly with the history of our country. Um, And I think World War II provides this really amazing opportunity to do that, Um, that I hope that people can engage with this book and engage with this larger history and understand that the stories of these Black veterans are really inspiring because they were fighting Truly make America a better country. They're they fighting. They're fighting for America to be able to live up to its its claimed ideals. Um, and I, I think that the vision they had for what America could be, um, is an is an inspiring one. Um, but I think to recognize that and to talk honestly about that history means you have to understand that a lot of what was happening during World War II was was racist, violent, and and wrongheaded. Um, and the thing I try to share with my students and I try to share with public audiences when I talk is that the importance of studying history is that it gives us an opportunity to engage with primary sources and with evidence that can give us insights into how people experience the past. Um, and that, that's, that's really our, our charge as historians is to be able to tell the truth about the past and be able to use evidence to help uh, help tell those truths. And the kind of history I present in this book, the history is true regardless if President Biden's in the office or President Trump or President Bush or whomever might be in the office in the future. It doesn't swing back or f- forth depending on um, which party is in power in Washington, D.C. Like this, this history is this history. And uh, our responsibility as American citizens is to engage with it honestly. Yeah.
2: And so what sort of audience did you imagine for this book?
1: So this is my, my first book with a trade press. Um, all my previous books have been with university presses, which, I, which I've loved. I've been proud to, proud to publish with them. Um, for a trade press, I, I knew I had to be trying to write for a much larger audience. And so when I wrote the book, I was, I was, I was thinking of a, a couple of different audiences in mind. Um, one was... Audiences who have some interest in familiarity with African-American history, but m- might be less familiar with this particular time period or must, less familiar with the military history aspects of World War II. And so hope, hoping to get um, uh, folks who may be well-versed in African-American history, get them more exposure to some of the, the details of uh, supply and logistical units in World War II or the Red Ball Express or uh, some of those, those stories. And then on the other hand, trying to expose fans of military history to more African American history. Um, it, at the risk of overgeneralizing, um, military history doesn't uh, engage as much with issues of race uh, and racism as, as it could. Um, it doesn't engage as much with the contributions of, of Black Americans. There, obviously, there are a number of good books on Black military history, but there's there's not as much overlap as there could be. And so, my hope was to, to reach kind of those two key audiences and provide them with uh, history that hopefully will be new to them, um, that it will speak to some things that they already know they're interested in, but also uh, give them some information that they will be surprised by. Um, and I'd say, at least anecdotally, based on the emails I've received and some of the social media comments, I think it's working. Um, I've been pleasantly surprised by just the range of different um, people who responded positively to it. Um, and I've, I've had the opportunity to talk about the book now with a whole host of different audiences across different age demographics. Racial and regional demographics, uh, political orientations, and and people have been encouraged. People have really embraced the work uh, uh, on its own merits. That they've they've they found things that they've that they've learned from the book and have enjoyed it.
2: Wonderful. And uh, what do you want readers to take away from your book?
1: More than anything, I hope readers will recognize that it's impossible to talk about the history of World War II without talking about Black Americans. I think World War II is the watershed moment in 20th century U.S. history. Um, I think it's a period that is almost certainly going to be taught at the high school and college level um, for decades and decades to come. But in my own experience, it's a period that is often taught with only passing reference to Black Americans, that there might be a reference to Tuskegee Airmen, maybe a reference to Doris Miller, maybe an occasional reference to some of the civil rights activism at home. I, I hope more than anything else that when average americans average students think about that time period they know that you have to be talking about black americans to make sense of what was actually going on in the united states during that time
2: well dr delmat we've taken up a lot of your time and thank you for it again uh so i'll ask just one final question what are you working on now
1: um professionally uh, i'm thinking about my next book project which i anticipate being about the vietnam war in some way um i'm Don't have everything entirely worked out yet, but I anticipate it'll be about uh, Black Americans in the Vietnam War, Um, both the military contributions, but also uh, the very intense anti-war protests that were going on at the time. And so I've been excited to be doing more reading and research about that. Um, And then, like most everyone, um, balancing uh, professional stuff with with personal stuff. Um, And so... um, coming up on, on Christmas here, and so uh, trying to think about uh, Christmas gifts for our 11-year-old and 8-year-old. Um, and then I uh, just moved my mom out here from uh, from Minnesota. So last week I was home uh, packing up uh, her apartment and just got her moved out here to a condo about 10 minutes away from where my family and I live. And so uh, a lot of my time the last uh, couple weeks has been thinking about family stuff as well. So um, excited to, to wrap up all those or continue working on, on all those fronts in the year ahead.
2: Well, the, the project sounds like a great project and the rest of it sounds very busy. Yeah. Um, but uh, Dr. Matthew Delmont, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it and take care. Great, thanks a lot. Right. Thanks for having me.
1: With Lucky slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.